We're joined today by distinguished Wall Street Journal investigative reporter, national security reporter, Brett Forrest, to talk about his Amazon editor's pick, best nonfiction book. It's called Lost Son, An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret Wars. Brett Forrest, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here with you guys. This is a tremendous new book, a compelling story. How did you find it? Oh, I found it uh, a few years back. This was December 2017. I was uh, sitting at the Wall Street Journal, uh, at my desk at the Wall Street Journal Bureau in Washington, when I got a phone call from a source. This is uh, an American guy uh, who I've known for a number of years, who um, has a lot of really interesting, valuable contacts in both Russia and Ukraine, um, where I've spent much of my professional career working. And, uh, And he told me, he didn't know much about the case, but he told me everything he knew. And that was, there was a young man from Michigan around near the Detroit area, in the Detroit area, who had been working for the FBI for five years as a source, and mostly in counterterrorism. And a year after Russia fomented war in the Ukrainian East, um, in 2015, uh, this young man from Michigan, Billy Riley, uh, went to Russia traveled to Russia, and uh, he disappeared there. Shortly after his disappearance, his FBI handler uh, arrived at uh, the door to his family home uh, and said he that the FBI knew nothing about the trip to Russia. The handler began confiscating devices from the family and then shut out the Rileys completely. And that's what I heard on that first phone call. And I sat up in my chair and I said, this this has the makings of a fascinating tale because it's uh, it's a mystery. Um, it's a personal story of a young man sort of coming of age after 9-11 and uh, getting recruited by the FBI. Uh, it's a, a family's search for the truth within the U.S. national security apparatus. Uh, and it takes us from the war on terror to the war in Ukraine. And that's when I started working on it in December 2017. And congratulations on the early praise. You're being compared to James M. Cain, Graham Greene. This is being called a masterwork of intrigue and reporting with the feel of a spy novel. Can you tell us uh, some details maybe about young Billy Riley? At the center of the story. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thankful that it's finally done. <laughs> so, um, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll take, uh, I'll take those kind words, of course. But uh, yeah, I'm just happy that it's out there. So, Billy Riley, uh, yeah, Billy Riley was in high school when 9/11 happened, and at such an impressionable age, uh, he, well, 9/11 affected him profoundly, and here was, here was a, a great difference between Billy Riley and most other Americans. Uh, as you remember, at that time, we were all asking the same questions. Who did this? And who perpetrated 9-11? And where are they now? Uh, and how can we get them? Right? But Billy didn't, didn't ask himself those questions. He actually took a, a family road trip uh, a few months after the attacks to Manhattan. And he and his family stood on the edge of, of ground zero there as it, as it was still being sort of excavated, if you will. Um, and he saw for himself the you know the sort of the ruins the effect of these uh, these attacks and the question that he asked himself was not where are these people and, and who did it 
The question he asked himself was, why? Why did they do it? And what drove them to do it? And then this question, why, became the sort of the, the keystone for, for Billy's life subsequently as, um, as he went online trying to answer that question and found himself profoundly drawn to global conflicts, world religion, uh, foreign languages. And uh, as he himself was in, in his adolescence, so was the internet. And all of these new abilities were, were being given to him uh, that would further his inquiry uh, into the wider world. It's a, it's a story that captures you from the first instance. Um, he taught himself Arabic. He taught himself Russian. He did this online. Uh, his curiosity kind of fueling his adventure. But he ends up tied, tied up with uh, law enforcement, federal law enforcement. And for many folks who listen to the program and say served overseas in combat in Iraq or Afghanistan, you may have been familiar with DEA agents, maybe FBI agents, and a little bit confused at the time to find what you thought were domestic law enforcement personnel abroad in a foreign combat zone. Brett, tell us a little bit about how these organizations uh, intersect with Billy's Tale. So, so one, that's one reason why I was drawn to the stories because it's often hard to uh, to tell a tell a compelling narrative about these large kind of faceless monolithic federal agencies. Um, but Billy Riley allows us to do that in, in an interesting way because we can, we can tell his personal story and, and he brings us into into contact with these with these major issues that were facing our country after 9-11. Um, as, you, as you might recall, the 9-11 Commission um, threatened the closure of the FBI because the FBI, as, we all, as many of us know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, the FBI, they're, they're, they're the, the, the agency that is most responsible for, for counterterrorism and counterintelligence. And... 9-11 was their, their signal failure. Um, and so the 9-11 Commission and the administration uh, mandated that the FBI and the CIA finally come together and work in a more co cooperative fashion, whereas before they had for decades been, been sort of uh, you know, had this, this rivalry. Um, but also there was a mandate that the FBI make much more usage of cooperators and informants, especially in counterterrorism. And in 2004, the FBI instituted what was called the Confidential Human Source Reengineering Project. And what that did was it, it, it grouped all cooperators and informants and, and under a new category, Confidential Human Source, or CHS. And... Uh, and the FBI agents began recruiting more and more people, civilians, who who might have abilities uh, that uh, that many FBI agents lacked. For example, you mentioned Billy Riley's uh, ability to speak Russian and, and Arabic, uh, which were rare abilities, and, and to a large extent remain so at the FBI. Um, and so the FBI began began recruiting more and more such people. Now tasking them with creating 
uh, with harvesting intelligence. Because the FBI forever was a law enforcement body charged with collecting evidence that could be used in criminal prosecutions in court. But after 9-11, as many of us know, the FBI had to change. And it changed into more of an intelligence agency. And you could even see it in the nomenclature, confidential human source. It's a very vague term, confidential human source. I think we, we all know what a cooperator is, what a criminal an informant. We know what these people do. But, but CHS, it, it, it was sort of a sign, at least to me, that, that the FBI was becoming more like the CIA. So you, just to sort of round it up here, so, so Billy Riley was, was, a, was a guy who was just about to graduate college was living at home with his parents, spending a lot of time on social media, on his phone, on, on the computer, had very few friends, uh, was fascinated by the wider world. And the FBI uh, got wind of some of his internet traffic. And they wanted to know what he was doing and who he was talking to. And they were impressed by his abilities. And they asked him if he wanted to come work for them. It does sound like a like a novel, almost something that seems more fiction than nonfiction. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes in modern day, there are fewer and fewer places of uh, mystery or fewer and fewer unknown places in this era of history. Um, many Americans, though, are maybe with that feeling are finding themselves following a passion and a curiosity to Ukraine. And it's been a theme for your, some of your reporting outside of this book. But when Russia stirred rebellion in Ukraine, you say that Billy set out to make his mark. Billy was 28 years old, and he was in that period of life when uh, he, he, he was feeling this urge, this inner urge to, to do something, to, to, to become somebody, uh, as you mentioned, to make his mark. And you know, Billy had an urge to matter like so many of us do, especially you know, when, when we're younger. Um, and uh, Billy had spent years, even before his association with the FBI, and, but especially during it, um, uh, watching and talking to people throughout the world who were putting their lives on, their li on the line for, things, for their beliefs and, and, and in, the, in, a str in struggles to make political and social change. Some of these people were, uh, just put it bluntly, bad people. I mean, these were people that the FBI had directed Billy to contact, people who were uh, ISIS associates, people who were, uh, you know, who were countenancing uh, terrorist uh, conspiracy, uh, but also people, uh, Russians, who were fomenting war in Ukraine and fighting against uh, the Ukrainian state. Uh, so Billy, and, and, but there were others as well. I mean, there were people who were, uh, you know, fighting, fighting for causes that, let's say, you know, uh, that, that might align with U.S. interests. Um, so he was he was talking to all sorts of people, but many of these people were, you know, li living lives of great stakes, while Billy was living with his parents in Oxford, Michigan, just north of Detroit, with a, a very sort of sleepy community. Um, and he, I think, felt that he, there was a great chance that his life, his own life, was going to pass him, pass him by. Um, so when war broke out in eastern Ukraine in 2014, he was immediately drawn to it, 
just like he had been drawn to the Arab Spring a few years before in the Middle East. Um, and he had he had sort of made fits and starts like he had he had made some trips abroad with his family, but he'd also gone to the airport in Detroit with uh, with the intent to travel to the Far East and meet up with somebody that the FBI had been had, had sent him to target, um, at least online. And he had backed out of that trip. So in 2015, he was determined to go, to go, to leave the computer, to leave the phone and, and become one of the people that he'd been reading about and talking to for so many years. And that's where the story takes hold. Uh, his parents, frantic, asked the FBI for help once Billy's communications drop, but they struggle to find answers, as so many families have when their loved ones have gone overseas to fight in the military, or in this case, to be affiliated with law enforcement. And so they turned to you. What was that like, a family coming to a reporter with such a, uh, with such a serious problem? Right. Right. Um, yeah, that, that is one of the, the grave turns in the, the fortunes of the Riley family. Um, and this is where we get into the part of the story where there's just a lot of mystery. And this is, this is where we spend most of our effort trying to unravel it and understand it. Um, and this is also when I talk about this, this book, this is when I sort of have the one caveat, like I, I did certainly, I don't want to give away the ending. Uh, as I'd like readers to enjoy the experience of the book. Um, but but getting to your question, I learned of this story, as I mentioned, through a source. And he gave me the Riley's number, the parents of Billy Riley. And I called them. And they were frightened instantly. Because you can imagine someone from the Wall Street Journal calling them. They, they probably thought that uh, that I had news of their son and that it wasn't good. But when I, I calmed them down a little bit and I said, look, I don't know much about the case. I just know bare bones here and I'm interested in it and maybe I can help. And, and at that time, they were they were not only relieved, but they, they really welcomed me into their efforts to find him. Because by that point, they had been searching for Billy for about two and a half years. I mean, imagine two and a half years they hadn't heard word from their son. They felt like the U.S. government was prevaricating with them. Uh, despite the fact that Billy had worked for the FBI for five years and had been at the beck and call of his handlers and had done a lot of really valuable and interesting work for the Bureau. They felt like the government had turned its back on them. Uh, and they, they're just sort of regular folks, if you will, from Michigan. They don't have any language skills that would be applicable here. They have no contacts in Russia. They went to Russia themselves, but uh, there was only so much they could achieve. And by the time I contacted them, they really felt like they had nothing left to try. So I, I went out to Detroit um, shortly after our phone call and, and met with them at their home. And that began um, what became a, a really interesting and, and uh, important relationship with the Riley family. Um, and they very willingly gave me pretty much everything that they had, including uh, Billy's hard drives, um, the entire chat between his mother and, and Billy when while Billy was in Russia before his communications lapsed and many, many other pieces of interesting uh, material and evidence that I eventually used to try and figure out what the heck was going on. I mean, it's very difficult 
to dig into it, but uh, but fascinating at the same time. And I'll hold there on the emotional investigation that you make and just ask listeners to go to the book, Lost Son, uh, that's being, the narrative is being compared to John Krakauer's Into the Wild, among other excellent works of narrative type nonfiction, investigation, adventure, thrilling. But let me step back for a second and pan out to the broader theme of hostage diplomacy which pings in the news. Brittany Griner, the basketball player, recently released. Your own colleague at the Wall Street Journal, Evan Gershkovich. Um, these are headlines that seem to be occurring with a greater frequency. What are listeners, readers to make of what's happening between the United States and Russia right now with regard to prisoners and hostages? Right. And that's something that I think a lot of people are asking themselves. Okay, so there was this professional basketball player, and the United States uh, traded a, a notorious arms dealer for a professional basketball player. Like, I, I think a lot of people fundamentally don't understand that. Um, but more broadly, how how it has how has everything come to this? And uh, it's it's a fascinating history, at least from my point of view, because of course you go back to the Cold War, and there was a lot of horse trading, if you will. That might not be the that, that apt um, term, but uh, there was a lot of trading, of taking and trading of, of prisoners on each side. Um, but after the Soviet Union fell, th this practice sort of went away, this practice at least between the two countries, U.S. and Russia. And this new round really began in 2008, uh, at least from Russia's point of view. Uh, the U.S. would differ. Uh, because in 2008, as many of your listeners, I'm sure, would recall, that's when uh, authorities in Thailand arrested the notorious arms dealer, Russian arms, arms dealer, Victor Boot. Um, and this was something that had been engineered by uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration in the U.S. Because uh, they had found uh, some evidence that Victor Boot was, while he was mainly operational in Africa, that he was also selling arms in South America. And uh, Central America, and that, and South and Central America, and that uh, and that was that's always sort of been the DEA's backyard, of course, because of you know, their activities in Colombia for so many years. Um, and they they believed that that Boot was uh, had an intent to sell weapons to uh, the FARC guerrillas in Colombia. Um, so they actually set up a sting with sources who posed as as FARC. Uh, members and uh, and we're speaking with Boot in Thailand about uh, purchasing missiles from him that they intended to use. They said they intended to use against uh, American targets and people. Uh, so the U.S. Uh, the authorities in Thailand grabbed Victor Boot on a U.S. DEA warrant on a conspiracy charge, a host of conspiracy charges, and uh, and eventually the, the uh, Thai authorities extradited Boot to the U.S where he was tried and convicted and sentenced to a lengthy term. Now, when that happened, the Russians, the Russian officials, the Kremlin officials were, were outraged. They were saying, hold on, this guy never committed a crime, at least by our legal standards, whereas the U.S. said, no, it's a conspiracy. You, the Russians said, well, he never did anything. Um, plus, he's, he's a Russian citizen. He's not a U.S. citizen. And he's in a third country. He's in Thailand. Um, 
Very soon after that, in 2010, the DEA did a similar operation where they, they netted another Russian, uh, a pilot who was uh, part of a, a drug conspiracy in Africa and extradited into the U.S. He, he was tried, sentenced, convicted to a lengthy term. So these two guys, uh, Yaroshenko was the pilot, Konstantin Yaroshenko, and Viktor Booth, the Russian arms dealer. These were the two cases that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov repeatedly brought up with uh, you know various U.S. presidents and secretaries of state over the years and saying, you got to release these guys. You got to release these guys. And and U.S. officials were always saying, "Well, look, they they broke laws. They their their cases were adjudicated, and our, this is how our system works. And we're not releasing them. They're not political prisoners." But um, but this is the period when Russia was becoming more emboldened. Putin was becoming more emboldened. Uh, he was he was he was saying more about the West, more about NATO, and uh, and they took these arrests as a diplomatic affront. You have to fast forward then to 2018 when Russia changed its mind and they said, we're going to finally do something about this. And that's when they arrested the American former Marine Paul Whelan in Moscow. They charged him with espionage. Just like the others, he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to a lengthy term. Right, And that's when the, the conversation changed. Shortly after that, Russia took another former Marine in Moscow, Trevor Reed, and they started seriously discussing with the U.S. Uh, trading these two in some fashion for the two Russians they had always wanted. So that's kind of the backstory. Um, and now we're in this period of hostage diplomacy where it's kind of, you know, each side is waiting for the other to blink. Um, it's a little bit hard to understand why Russia took. Our uh, Wall Street Journal colleague, Evan Gershkovich, and what their ultimate goal is. Hmm. The book is Lost Son by Wall Street Journal national security reporter Brett Forrest. He perhaps provides some insight into an answer to that question uh, through this book. Brett, thanks for joining us today to talk about it. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.